2: A woohoo! A hand clapper, a high fiver. I kinda like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, EGW, avoidment prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
0: The only daily Premier League podcast. This is is Football
3: Social Daily. Welcome to your Monday edition of Football Social Daily. I'm Jim Salverson, that's Nama Korn. Hello. That's Marley Anderson. Good morning. And we're going to be looking back over the weekend's action, not by a game by game, blow by blow analysis. We left that to Fergal and the boys yesterday on the podcast, which you can go and find on the feed now. Today we're going to be looking at who deserves a bit of glory and who deserves to be put into detention we're going to be judging our heroes and villains from the weekend's action very shortly we've also got the small matter of the biggest derby in english football to go at it's palace versus brighton it's the battle of the m23 we'll be giving our views on that very shortly and i want to start off with something that may be slightly controversial on today's football social daily because it feels a little bit early to be talking about who's going to get the sack, who's going to lose their job. But we're going to do it anyway, because what are we? Six games into the Premier League season now, and there's some people that may find themselves in different parts of the table than they expected at the beginning of the season. Not me. (laughs) Steve Bruce in Newcastle is as is, as expected. But there's maybe a couple of other shocks in that table. I want to talk about who is going to be feeling the pressure at the moment, going through some of the managers that I think... The board could be starting to question, certainly over the next couple of weeks. And because of the result at the weekend, the thrashing by Arsenal for Tottenham, I think Nuno Espirito Santo is maybe finding his position at Tottenham under pressure. Now, this comes off the back of a very poor result at the weekend and a very poor display as well. Is it going that badly for Nuno at Spurs or is it pure reaction to losing the North London derby
4: to Arsenal? Both. It is going badly for Nuno at Spurs and they were humbled by Arsenal and in the first 35 minutes humiliated. They were 3-0 down after 34 minutes in a North London derby and all of the talk is around Harry Kane and how it looks like he doesn't want to be there but there's still 10 other players on the pitch Mm. and Nuno Sprito-Santo it's his job to try and squeeze as much juice out of those players as he possibly can. Now There's also the question marks over him as a manager in the first place in terms of him not being Tottenham's first choice when Jose Mourinho was sacked. Obviously, Ryan Mason was in temporary charge. And this summer, there was a a hunt for a manager. And it was a pretty public hunt, to be fair, from Tottenham Hotspur. And Nuno Espirito Santo wasn't really anywhere near the top of that shortlist. But yet he finds himself in the job. So you have to have a little bit of sympathy for him in that respect, because the, the the managers that Tottenham chased didn't want to come to the club. Now, that sends a message to me about Tottenham Hotspur as a football club and the way things are run operationally behind the scenes. And, you know, Nuno, Sprito, Santo left Wolves kind of a mutual consent thing where they both knew that it was getting a bit stale at Wolves. It's already gone stale at Tottenham for mm. Santo. You know, they started brilliantly in the international break or the recent international break, I think the end of the month, August, they were top of the table, having won three games, all three of them 1-0. Arsenal, bottom of the table, they had lost all three and I think they had a minus nine goal difference. 20 places between the two sides. And everyone was saying, well, maybe Spurs do have a little bit here. But since then, they've been... Beaten by Chelsea, they were demolished by Crystal Palace and they've been demolished again by Arsenal.
3: Did that win over City, that very first day win, where everyone expected City to absolutely walk that? Didn't that paper over some cracks at the yeah. time that maybe weren't apparent?
4: Massively. And I think that you always get those strange results on the first day of a season. It, it's just one of those things where no one really knows what the deal is at the start of the season with every team. I mean, the chances of of Manchester City losing on opening day aren't particularly great, but Spurs aren't a bad side. They've got they've got good players. Mm. It's just one of those things where I absolutely agree the the cracks were very much papered over. And uh, are they cracks that you know Nuno Espirito Santo is the the builder to fix? Mm. You know, has he got the tools and the skills to fix those problems for Tottenham? So yeah, I mean, I definitely think that with what Spurs expect. And with how they want to become a European heavyweight, really, in the future with the stadium they've got, then they've got a big problem. And I feel for Nuno Brito Santo because, you know, it's not like he's trying, he's trying for things to go wrong. His mm. managers always want to be successful. But I think if they do pull the trigger and send him on his way, Tottenham risk becoming exactly what they've lambasted Chelsea fans for mm. for the last 15 years. Oh, you hire and fire, you sack your managers. You might win silverware, but you've got no legacy. Well, it works for Chelsea, and and Tottenham are going to do it without the silverware. Tottenham are going to do it without the silverware part <laughs> if they carry on. But it's certainly looking grim for Santo. I think I saw a statistics graphic on Sky Sports at the weekend where I think that they're seventeenth for shots, or they're, they're basically they they rank very very mm. low in terms of the statistics side of things. And I know the game isn't played off of data and analysis. You know, the good old-fashioned two-eyes test works quite well. And by from what I saw against Arsenal, it looks like a Spurs side devoid of life, devoid of energy and devoid of ideas from a manager who might well be out of his depth. Bottom of the
3: stats chart in terms of average distance run in a game as well, which I think is never a particularly good sign for a team. It often smacks of a team not necessarily trying for their manager. I guess, Marley... The kind of reasons that were questioning him coming into the job and being that fifth, sixth choice or whatever he was could actually be what keeps him in the job. Because Spurs, if they do get rid of Nuno Espirito Santo, who do they go to? Do they go to their seventh choice, their eighth choice?
1: Well, I think, was it like something like 92 days it took them from having no manager to to eventually mm. appointing Nuno? So, you know, if if that's... If that's happened when you've got time to to do things, you know, in the summer, basically, you don't want to repeat that process when you don't have time. Because in the meantime, while you're trying to find someone new, you're losing games or you you're continuing with a manager you're unhappy with. So, I can't see him being sacked. There's also the money thing uh, when it comes back to Levy, and he doesn't like spending money. He, he won't want to pay out um, compensation, you know, five weeks or whatever it is, six weeks into the season. Um, on the I think he's on a, he a three-year, two two or three-year contract. So, you know, it's still a fair whack of of cash. So, I, the the logic suggests he's gonna he's gonna stay. Um, I don't think he'll get sacked anytime soon. I think two or three managers will probably go before him. But, um, yeah, he's not. I don't know why it's changed because it was going well, and then they beat Man City, and then it then the next game they lost to Crystal Palace. So, it was almost like. I quite, wait, where where where's well. that come from and Palace haven't looked any good since have they mm. like you know Palace aren't a good team I'll say that <laughs> Crystal Palace probably hit me to death but <laughs> yeah. they're just not a very good team um, and they've they've smashed Spurs and then Spurs are just I feel like they, they, they feel sorry for themselves all the time and it takes them ages to get over something like a setback and once they reach the top of the of anything they have a good result they, they believe their own hype and then they they get beat and then they just lick their wounds for the next five weeks mm-hmm. and, and end up losing three of them games
3: and drawing the other in, putting yeah. pressure on the manager again. So. How much of this is about Harry Kane? Because you mentioned him, now, the fact that he isn't on form, but he's never on form in kind of August, September, <laughs> is it? It takes some ages to find the net normally. And the narrative is obviously going to be that he didn't want to be at Spurs. He wanted to leave for another club. And if you have a firing Harry Kane in your team, yeah, that adds 10% to you. Yeah, no question. Chance. But you can't, at the same time, you can't blame him in its entirety for Spurs not performing.
4: And you can even use Manchester United's performance this weekend against Aston Villa as an example. You know, Ronaldo, Fernandes, Pogba, Greenwood. You know, all of these players who Manchester United have, and they were poor Mm. against Aston Villa. I mean, they had, I think, 20-odd shots and only three of them were on target. You know, you can have all of the attacking players in the world. If, if If you can't get it going, then you can't expect to win games. And... You know, Harry Kane, we've spoken about him and actually one thing I will give Santo credit for is the way he dealt with the Kane situation in the summer. I thought he dealt with it very, very well, particularly with the media and with the questions that were being thrown his way when he was new in the job. He just said, listen, I'm here to do a job and Harry Kane is our player until I'm told otherwise. And I think he dealt with it expertly. Um, Unfortunately for Kane, he's come back and it's just, it feels flat. Like I said, it feels limp, feels devoid of all real life and enthusiasm and excitement. And that isn't what Tottenham should be. You know, with a stadium that's not really even two, three years old, one of the best in the world, a new manager, uh, uh, the best players staying, Son signing a new six-year contract, fresh faces coming into the side. This should be an exciting time for Tottenham Hotspur, and it feels mm. the total opposite. Um, but you're right, you can't hang your hat on Harry Kane every single week. Now, the last three or four seasons, he's consistently performed every single week. And scored goals more often than not in every game, but you can't expect him to continue that. And you know Tottenham to be successful in in spite of him doing that should be a a given. You know when your best player doesn't play well, you should be able to find enough when you're a team of Tottenham's stature and quality to find a way through to win the game. They haven't done that, so I think it's an easy avenue, isn't it, to to blame the lack of Harry Kane's form on Tottenham's recent performances but it runs much deeper than that for me
3: You mentioned there's some other managers that you think might go before Nuno Espirito Santo Marley. I mean some of the managers that are probably sweating a little bit at the moment include Mikel Arteta at Arsenal probably Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester United even though they're in fourth still at the moment there was some calls about His team's performance at the weekend, and there's always pressure on him as a manager. Sean Dyche, Daniel Farker, although they've probably got teams that you'd expect to be at the wrong end of the table, they certainly are failing to pick up points so far this season. Who do you think the pressure is on from those managers? Who do you think will be the first to get their P45?
1: I think it deserves to be Farker, if I'm if I'm honest. I think I I don't. I'm usually in favour of of managers who've brought a team up from the Championship getting. You know, time to sort it out, but it's different with Norwich because he's he's brought them up before and he's done. You know, they started off well and then ultimately went down with a whimper. Mm. And I feel like if if you if you sit and let that happen again, that is terrible uh, management of of you know director level sort of management of a football club because you know, in my opinion, Norwich have gone backwards since coming into the Premier League because they sold Buendia and yes, okay, Brendy was always going to leave the club, but I think there's a time to, to let him leave and it's not just before a season comes in, uh, a season starts, sorry, in the summer before. Um, they haven't signed well enough. Uh, the goals have dried up. Pukki's not the same as he was a couple of years ago when everyone quickly shoveled him into the fantasy team and, and got points off him uh, left, right and centre when he came up in the Premier League last time. Um, the the new signings, Rashica, uh, Lise Malou, they're... they're, they're not good enough to, uh, you know, Brandon Williams at left back, he's he's learning. He's trying to, you know, swim in deep water very quickly. Um, and I f- feel a bit sorry for him, but also, you know, he took that challenge on. He knew what he was getting into. Um, and I think, yeah, Norwich is, is the one I would worry about. Losing six out of six, no real signs of it improving uh, until we play Newcastle.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess the thing that Daniel Farga has got this heritage with Norwich and that protects him to a certain extent. Sean Dyche, should probably say, was the same at Burnley. And another manager I'd probably put into that category of has a lot of credit with the fans is Bielsa at Leeds, mm-hmm. Nile. because you look at the start they've made to the season. I don't think they've got a win yet. No. They're in trouble. They look in trouble, but there is no one questioning his future because of how much credit he has
4: with Leeds United and with the fans there. I agree and you know he's got a mural in Leeds and Mm. they love him for what he's done for the club getting them back to the Premier League after 16 years and you know walking around Sainsbury's in his Leeds tracksuit top cycling to work through down the cycle lane to the training (laughs) ground you know they're all things that kind of make him a bit of a cult icon in Leeds and Leeds have fallen on tough times and they came close to promotion from the championship a few years ago and then Bielsa came in and really kind of revolutionized things and you know they, they fell agonisingly short in his first season and then in his second season they managed to get the job done and Mm. he'll be forever loved at Leeds United for achieving that. Obviously he's got this thing where he only signs one year contracts which is always a cause for concern because it literally gets to the last day of pre-season before it's announced that he signs this new one year deal. I think with Bielsa they've got someone who tactically knows what he's doing. I think they've also got a number of injuries at the back. I mean obviously Pascal Strike's been out with a Uh, A suspension due to a red card. Diego Llorente's been injured. Robin Cox's been injured. I think they've had some issues at the back in terms of their defensive capabilities, just with players and personnel missing. So I think that they'll come good eventually. When you have that, like, from Bielsa's
3: point of view, when you have issues at the back, when you're missing defenders, and they are undoubtedly, I think they're missing the Mm. first two choice centre backs, and you need to tighten up, don't you? As a manager, surely. And this is the fundamental problem with Bielsa and his football, is that idealistically, he wants to play open attacking football. Yes. But when you've got no backbone to your team, when you've got <laughs> when you've got no solidity at the back, you can't play that football. They face 20 shots against yeah. my lot at the weekend. And West Ham aren't the most offensive of teams.
4: I know, but I mean, Bielsa's kind of old school in the sense that the point of football is to outscore the opposition. Mm. And he'll back his team to do that. You score five, we'll score six. You know, that's the kind of mentality that I think his sides have had throughout the years. And he's ultimately right. If you win you get three points. And, you know, if you concede five but score six, your goal difference is a differential of one. So, you know, if it's going down to the fine margins of goals scored and goals conceded, then um, then obviously that's unfortunate at the end of a season. But I definitely think that that is his mentality and maybe he does need to change. And I think that's something, you know, you can level that at Daniel Farker as well. Maybe he needs to change because the football that gets Norwich up from the championship isn't good enough to keep them in the Premier League. Mm. You know, uh, in, with Bielsa, though, in terms of we're talking about a sack race, he will walk away from Leeds United before he's sacked. I think that Bielsa is the sort of character where if he knows things have gone stale and they aren't going right and it's a black hole that he can't get out of and there's no fix to the problems that he has. Let's just say in the next month they don't get a win and they're still in the relega- relegation zone and they just don't look like the same side that they did before. I think he'll walk away. I think he will. I think he's mm. the sort of character that will walk away for the greater good of the club.
1: I don't know if he'll walk away during a, during a season though. No. I, I think definitely at the end of the season if they finish like 14th or something he'll probably go. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not sh- not sure about in the middle because yeah. then you, you do more damage then because...
4: Yeah, I'm not sure he's bothered though is he? Uh, yeah, yeah, this is a guy who I, signs one I year deals and
1: leaves people on tenterhooks towards the end yeah like, but, that's,
3: but that's that's because d-
1: he s- he's his biggest self critic yeah. he, he doesn't want to take the team backwards and so therefore would he not walk
4: away if well, he's his, his own biggest critic
3: does he sign the deal though because he wants to honour the deal it's like does he only go one year because he knows he wants to, he wants to be a man of his word and wants well, to see out his contract
4: regardless of what happens if he leaves this season if he stays on for another 10 years I think Leeds need to start thinking about what happens after Bielsa because mm. it feels like it's Marcelo Bielsa's Leeds United and that he's bigger than some of the players they've got. Yeah. He's more important. Well, he is. (laughs) He is. Well, he is. You know, he's the key component. And I think that that's always a danger, you know, of any manager kind of being bigger than the team and the sum of its parts. And um, I can't see him being sacked, put it that way. I can't see him walking away either. But I think that, you know, if, if things are still bad for Leeds in the next couple of months, it'd be really interesting to see what does happen.
3: Certainly, in terms of the odds, he's not
4: going anywhere
3: anytime soon. 25 to 1 to be the next manager, Sack. You'll be pleased to know Marley. Steve Bruce tops that list. 10 to 3, are his odds. And also, Patrick Vieira is on that list. 14 to 1, his chances of being the first man out of Premier League employment. And we'll talk about Patrick Vieira's Crystal Palace, who are playing Brighton tonight, next on Football Social Daily.
0: Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk.
3: Welcome back to Football Social Daily. The magic of the M23 Derby awaits us tonight. And that is the final game of the weekend's Premier League action. It is Palace versus Brighton. I've been impressed with Brighton so far this season, Marley. They've been a bit of a surprise package. And if they win tonight, they go top of the Premier League. What's been the difference between this season and last season?
1: Um... Do you know what? Not much. Their, their their general level of play is is the same. They they've always been dominant with the with the ball in terms of possession. Um, they create chances. They just happen to be taking enough to win games so far this season. Um, and fair play to them because you know everybody talks about Brighton being you know not good enough, uh, too good to finish like fifteenth like they have done for the last. I think they finished fifteenth twice in a row, and then I think last year was was either sixteenth or fourteenth. I can't mm. remember. Um, but yeah, they you know they've, they've something's clicked. I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it'll last because um, they've still not got a new striker. They didn't go out and buy one in the summer. I thought they definitely needed to. Um, but if Welbeck and Morpay, if one of them can score every week, then you know, you, long may this little adventure continue because they're a much better team than than uh, than crystal palace. Um I think they proved that I think the last time they played like Brighton had like 25 shots, uh 70% possession and crystal palace had two shots in the entire game and 1-2-1. One, one. Um <laughs> so it's yeah, it's uh it's nice to see Brighton get the sort of um results of of their general level of play because it is it is frustrating sometimes like as a neutral when you can see teams trying to play properly and, and doing doing well enough, but then not getting anything to show for it because it almost makes you feel like, oh, should they play a bit more like Burnley and and have two banks of four all the time and try and win, you know, flick-ons and, and play a different way because sometimes as a neutral, you want to see the teams that play the nice football mm. get the results that they deserve. Um, and Brighton do do that as well, um, as well as most other teams, to be fair. So, um yeah, they, you know, they made a good start, and they'll hopefully uh, carry on against Crystal Palace because, like, logic would suggest that they are the better team. And but you know, reluctant to call it a derby, but <laughs> Derby's uh, form goes out the window
4: as the old cliche goes. I think they're, I think they're keen, both Palace and Brighton fans, particularly Palace fans, to stress it isn't a derby; it's a rivalry. It's right. not the M twenty three Derby, the A twenty three derby. They they hate it. They really dislike it being called that. Um and I understand, mm. actually as a Pompey fan, when we were down in League Two with Plymouth, Sky used to tear up as the dockyard derby. Mm. You know, Portsmouth's closer to Birmingham than it is to Plymouth. <laughs> so, I mean, there's no Plymouth. derby there. That, um, and we both when got. Was
1: it, when was this? When you were in what league? League two. And they oh were yeah. Down. Well, that's because you were no in here, Southampton.
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. Well, in but, terms of playing them every but, week. But Sky are trying to force a derby. Yeah. Like they called it the Dockyard Derby. No, no Plymouth or Portsmouth fan had ever called it the Dockyard Derby before. You know the. The guys from Broadcast jumped on the bandwagon and created a name for it. The fact we've both got building dockyards, you know, it's kind of manufactured Derby. The fact that there's a road between Brighton and, it's just, and Croydon. It's just to get people to watch Monday it, Exactly, Football it is. But, I mean, it's a game in which there's no love lost between the two teams. So, definitely think that... Um, uh, this will be a good game tonight because I, I think that um, Crystal Palace might be quietly confident mm. but so will Brighton considering how they've started. Are we getting yeah. a bit carried away with Brighton's start though when you look at the yes. teams they've actually
3: played? <laughs> I mean, yeah. they <laughs> lost They lost to Everton, they beat Watford, they beat Burnley, they beat Leicester City who have been poor so far this mm-hmm. season. They beat Brentford who have been a bit of a surprise package but they're yet to face any of kind of the the big six.
4: Yeah, and they're and, next... And they still haven't. Yeah, <laughs> well, their they're next... Four games, obviously, they've got Crystal Palace tonight, which is a rivalry. Mm. And then they've got a home game against Arsenal, who obviously have just beaten Tottenham quite convincingly. Then they go to Norwich. Now, they should win that. And then it's Manchester City at home at the end of October. Um, They've got Leicester in the League Cup and then Liverpool, Newcastle, Villa, Leeds, West Ham. So actually, the fixtures are quite favourable for them in terms of they are playing a couple of big teams in the next month or so, but not really back to back. Yeah. It's kind of they'll have Norwich, then City, and then they'll have someone else who you think that they'll quite fancy a result against. So you're right in terms of them not facing really anyone of of real significance and stature just yet. But they're doing well in the games that they are playing. And if they can pick up points in games, you know, the kind of run of the mill general Premier League games that aren't against the bigger hitters and uh, establish themselves a big gap between the relegation zone and where they are, that's a huge benefit to them and a huge bonus to them considering where they have been floating around just above the drop for the last three or four seasons.
3: They're going to be missing Basuma tonight, who has been, or could be missing Basuma. He's got a knee injury, so there's a late fitness test. He's been one of the massive positives for Brighton this season, Marley. And they've got some decent players. I mean, they've got people like... Danny Welbeck and Adam Lallana, who have showed flashes of brilliance during their careers, but maybe don't deliver on a particularly regular basis. Sean <laughs> Duffy's been playing well this season, although he, was out, he wasn't was even in the picture. The out alone of your season. sentence
4: was they've got decent players and then you go in with Welbeck and, <laughs> oh, and but, Lallana. I, but they've been all right so far this season. That's the thing, isn't it? It's kind of they're players who have
3: potential and occasionally they they show it. But Busuma has been outstanding in that midfield.
1: Yeah, he has. He's he's the uh he's he's probably the key to how they play. Like the the pressing, the the possession. He's got all of that. He's um he's very energetic. He doesn't give anyone a minute in the in the midfield, he doesn't allow them to play their their game, he's always on them. Um and he's he's comfortable in possession as well. He's got he's got enough to suggest he can play at the at a top six side, I would say. Mm. Um He's linked
4: he's, with Liverpool over the weekend.
1: Yeah, he was. He linked in the summer as well, I think. Um but, you know, it, it didn't happen. and I think it's one of them where it didn't happen in the summer, but if he has a good season, I think it happens at the end of the season, definitely. Um, especially if Brighton don't finish in the top half or, you know, anywhere significant. So he's his uh, top player he'd be a big miss for them tonight because I'm not sure who would come into that midfield and, and do a similar job. I think they lose a lot in midfield. Um, especially, you know, the likes of Conor Gallagher at, um, at, at Crystal Palace is one that needs to be shackled he's probably the one midfielder you'd you'd look at and say okay we have to keep an eye on him because he's got he can get forward and, and chip in with a goal or two so um brighton will be hoping Basuma can can come through um because he's he's
3: very very important to how they play let's talk about palace cause we've spoken at length about brighton i mean for them they've got um Edouard, the guy from Celtic, came in in the transfer window. I wrote him off instantly, said he couldn't do it in the Premier League. He <laughs> scored inside 30 yeah, seconds. scored two goals in the debut. <laughs> uh, not started a game yet, not started a home game for Crystal Palace. Surely he's not that far away from displacing Christian Benteke as the man to lead the attack from the off, though, is he?
1: Yeah, prob- Yeah, prob- not tonight, I wouldn't think. Um, you know, with it being a big blood and thunder derby. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, <laughs> you don't want it, to. It's just not one you chuck him in on his first start because if he if he doesn't uh, you know adapt a bit straight away, then uh, then you probably you've made a bit of a mistake. But I think Benteke will start, probably do Nout for t- uh, seventy minutes, and then eduardo will come on for the last twenty or twenty five, and and be uh, be the sort of guy who can maybe take advantage of a few tired legs or whatever. But he's um, he's not far off. Uh, starting over Benteke I'd probably say next week whoever they've got next he'll it, mm. probably start that game instead
3: A Palace getting dangerously close to being not a one-man team Niall when you look <laughs> at the players they've got they've still got Wolf Zahar, but now they've got Eze who's injured at the moment they've got yeah. Edward who looks impressive they've got Gallagher on loan as well from Chelsea that we've already talked about quietly they're kind of they're, there's more about them than just Wolf Zahar now
4: Yeah I think that's fair but also I think that they're still massively inconsistent And I think they have been for the last however many years under Roy Hodgson. Mm. But in their inconsistency, they've been consistent enough to stay in the Premier League and be mid-table. And that's what Roy Hodgson gave them, wasn't it? It Mm. was, you know, they might win a couple, then lose a couple, then draw a couple. You know, so you could call that consistent in their inconsistency in terms of not winning games back to back to back to back. But you wouldn't expect that from Crystal Palace anyway. So... I think that actually Roy Hodgson deserves credit for the foundations he's laid and it's actually given Crystal Palace the opportunity to hand the first managerial stint to someone like Patrick Vieira, who will have his own ideas that will be different to Roy Hodgson's and he'll be looking to implement them and to try and do that in the first six games of a season is difficult. But we've seen what Palace can do in the way they beat Tottenham. They, I mean, they, they were dominant even before the Tanganga sending off in that game. Crystal Palace were the better side mm. and I think it... Particularly at Selhurst Park is something they're going to need to capitalise on because I think at home they they can they can be a little bit more expressive. Certainly, the fans will want to see that. You know, a lot of teams like playing two defensive midfielders now in that four-two-three-one formation, and I think a lot of the criticism is at home. You don't do you need to play two defensive midfielders when the fans are on side? They want to see that aggressive football. I think every club's fans wants to see that. Um, and so, yeah, Crystal Palace in terms of a one-man team, Wilfred Zaha is still very important to what they do and how they do it. But Edouard got off to a perfect start, you know, with the two goals on his debut. And it's it's certainly a project that you can see at Crystal Palace from the outside looking in. So they've brought in Edouard. Does that mean Benteke is in his final year? We say this every season because he's terrible and then his contract is up for negotiation. He scores eight he in scored, the last three yeah, games. Eight in the last <laughs> so, however many games. Yeah, absolutely. So... That's certainly something. And with the flavour of players that they've brought in, Eber Eze is is obviously a young player, injured at the moment. Nathan Ferguson, they signed from West Brom two seasons ago, hasn't played because he's been injured. Um, Michael Elise, I watched him for Palace's under-23s last week, last Monday, in fact, and he was unbelievably good. They beat Leicester's under-23s, I think 6-1, and he assisted or was involved in five of the goals And uh, he was another, I think they brought in from Reading, who looks really promising, 19 years of age, also French like Patrick Vieira. So they've got that blend now of youth and experience. You know, the likes of Gary Cahill, they've said goodbye to, but they've also got players who have been in the Premier League for a number of years, like... Uh, Milivojevic, who probably isn't the greatest in terms of quality, but he does have experience mm. in terms of playing in the Premier League. So maybe that's something that they're looking to try and to try and do, is um, stand themselves in good stead for the future with some of these players like Herber-Eze and Eze and Evoard, who are just kind of still getting to grips with the Premier League, but might be real assets for them in the next few years.
3: Are you sold on Vieira yet? Yeah. I think we all wrote off Vieira when he was appointed at Crystal Palace. I think... A fair few of us, myself included, might have said, that's it, they're down, that's it, relegation. But he's done all right so far. It's difficult to criticise what he's done at Palace to date.
4: Yeah, I suppose so. And it's easy to forget that it's his first managerial job, even though he's been at New York City and uh, Manchester City. Obviously, he was a manager of New York City in America. But in terms of a European club, it's his first job, particularly to take on a Premier League club is a big step. They've got he a was game in nice for a bit, wasn't he? Of course he was, yeah. Sorry, yeah. My, my apologies. Yeah, no, he was. And uh, actually, if you look at them, 15th in the table going into tonight's game, five games played, and below them in the table, look at the teams who are below them. Southampton, who haven't won, but have drawn a number of games. Newcastle, Leeds, Burnley and Norwich. So really, you know, are they in and around where you'd expect them to be? Because all of the teams below them haven't been that good this season Mm. at all. You know, two or three of them still looking for their first wins of the campaign. So I think that that says a lot. And I think it's probably too early to tell. I can see what he's trying to do. But I think, um, again, it's always the old cliche. The barometer is around the end of November, start of December, heading into Christmas. If things are still looking like, you know, they're around 12 to 15th, I think that, that I think that Palace fans will be OK with that could be
3: up to 12th if they do win tonight and as i said earlier brighton could be topping the premier league by the end of the game tonight is brighton versus palace kickoff at eight o'clock we're going to do our heroes and villains next wrapping up the weekend with our saints and sinners from the last couple of days this is football social daily
0: football social daily subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode
3: Welcome back to Football Social Daily. Don't forget, you can find your next favourite sport podcast on the Sports Social Podcast Network, including Football Social Daily, a load of others as well. If you head to sport-social.co.uk, you can find everything there, including all the latest news on your team, whoever it is you support in the top flight of English football. And we're going to talk about the heroes and villains from the top flight of English football now. We'll start with heroes today. We'll start with the positives, as
4: always. Who are you going to give your hero status to, Nile? Oh, well, it was hard for me to pick any of the 11 players who turned out for Brentford at the weekend against Liverpool at the Brentford Community Stadium. And on the other side, I thought Mo Salah was was very good, scored again. I think it was his 100th Liverpool goal in the Premier League. He already reached 100 Premier League goals a couple of weeks ago. Of course, he bagged a couple of Chelsea for Chelsea in the short time he was there. And uh, he reached 100 Premier League goals faster than Thierry Henry. And I think that he's still somewhat understated for the impact he's had for Liverpool. And for how good a player he really is, lots of talk about Liverpool's greatest ever eleven. And I've seen so many people that haven't picked Mohamed Salah but have put Suarez in there. Suarez is brilliant, but Salah is better, and has been better for Liverpool. And I don't think there's a question there. The stats are there, the silverware is there to prove it—Champions League and Premier League—and he's still going. So for me, I think Salah is um, is is a notable second to any of the eleven Brentford players. As I say, brilliant game. Um, I was driving back from a game myself at the weekend and only managed to catch most of it on the radio Mm. and then watch the highlights later on that night. And it was a brilliant game. Really fun, really entertaining. I was delighted for Brentford because I said at the start of the season, I think they'll surprise a few. A lot of people had them in the bottom three. I don't think they will go down. If they carry on the rate that they're going with the work rate and the players that they've got and the desire they've got, I think that um, they can really upset a few more teams this season. And Jurgen Klopp isn't normally smiling after a draw. At, uh, at the end of a game, but in his post match interview he was smiling and saying, Do you know what? Fair play to Brentford. They deserve it. And for someone as whiny and whingy as Jürgen Klopp <laughs> to come out and say that post match, I think that deserves I think that's notable, uh, the amount of credit that Brentford do deserve. Thought they played really, really well. Balls into the box were causing some real problems for Liverpool and um they they just they just had a great game. And you know they'll have that's another evening for them to remember at uh, the Brentford Community Stadium a new home for them they beat Arsenal on the first day of the season their first time back in the top flight for I think 70 odd years and now they've got a draw to Liverpool, uh, against Liverpool to talk about very nearly a victory as well I think they could have easily won the game with some of the chances they had um, so yeah I think for, for me Brentford are, are my heroes for the weekend and just a quick one on, on Brentford and why they'll survive for me this season and the reason Norwich City won't despite the fact Norwich have got players who are experienced in the Premier League is Norwich, their players have got scars. Their players have got scars from the last time they were in the Premier League. Mm. Brentford don't have that. They've come into the top flight with players who are willing and hungry to prove themselves at the level. Players who have almost had it drummed into them because of the nature of money ball and the way that they've been signed by Brentford, that they were undervalued. You know, we've signed you for two million, but actually the statistics suggest you could be one of the best players in the division if, you know, if you keep your head down and knuckle mm. down, and I think that that injection of confidence and that injection of belief from the powers that be at Brentford, including the manager, of course, I think that is conducive to excellent and 100% committed performances. So Ivan I think
3: Tony is some player as well. I mean, he, he didn't, didn't score against Liverpool, but he was a constant thorn in their side. This was
4: a guy who was in League One two years ago playing for Peterborough. You know, um, Marley will know a little bit about him because he was at you know, he was at Newcastle before, but he never really showed it, I don't think, when he was up on Tyneside. But since he kinda of dropped out of the of the elite level and and it came down to the lower leagues, he's proven again exactly what sort of a player he can be. And just look at the way the Brentford model works. You know, Ben Rama's gone to West Ham. Mm. Ollie Watkins has gone to Aston Villa, both of those players sold for thirty million pounds. Now they've got Ivan Toney, who could be worth thirty million if he produces a 15 goal premier league season this year you know and brentford stay up and someone's sniffing around looking for a striker you know there's no reason why he can't be sold and then once he goes they'll find the next one so it's it's a it's a brilliant method a brilliant model and um it's great to see them succeeding in the Premier League at the moment I think it will be a bit closer come the end of the season in terms of relegation but I just think that they've got these players that have belief and desire and a winningness to prove that they are capable and they are good enough to be at mm. the level whereas Norwich have got too many players who are scarred battle scarred and have those mental that mental fatigue from the last time they were in the Premier League and I think that counts for a lot so Brentford are my heroes I love 11 to, of them
3: Liverpool love a little bit of net spend chat I'd love to see Brentford's <laughs> net spend I wonder what that is Marley who's your hero from the weekend? Uh, I've got. I'm I'm struggling to pick between
1: two. Um, and that's Saka and Smith Rowe at Arsenal. Um, I thought both of them were were quality in that in that uh, the win over Spurs. I thought they as locally produced lads. There's there's nothing like having a locally produced player who comes through. You know, Smith uh they're calling the hail end De Bruyne around and stuff <laughs> like that. And, I mean, that's probably a bit too far, a bit of a stretch, but. It, it brings it home that, that local players coming through and playing mm. for your team and, and producing things in, in the biggest games and the biggest game for Arsenal is still always Spurs. Um, so I think his performance at the weekend was was fantastic. Um, Saka backed him up superbly. He had Regal on, on toast for, for most of the game. Um, got an assist, got a goal, nearly got a, another assist in the second half as well and it was just a constant thorn. And I'm, I'm pleased for Saka after coming off the... Off the difficult summer he had, obviously, you know, with with what happened with um, his missed penalty and, and all the rest of it, it's nice to see him turn in that first sort of game-changing, almost man of the match performance um, in, like I say, the biggest game. So the pair of them were, were just brilliant. Um, they were, I thought, do you know what? I actually, I didn't think Spurs played did that much wrong in the first half. Just Arsenal were way better. Um, the reason I say that is like Spurs were trying to press Arsenal. And that's what you got to do. You got to make it hard for them to play and, and suffocate them. But Arsenal were too good in possession, and they've not been good in possession this this summer. Um, sorry, this season. But Smith Rowe in particular, um, and Partey and and Saka were you know, one of those new phrases in football where they were press-resistant. They passed through the press and made them look daft. I've never heard that phrase before. Is that, a new, is that like the next, is that, is that this trust, season's double pivot? Trust me, okay. in, the, in the next year. Now I've said it now, you'll notice it everywhere. Press-resistant, that is the new thing of... Football Twitter frigging. That sounds it. like
3: what you want in trousers, isn't it? <laughs> Give us some, <laughs> some press-resistant trousers, <laughs> yeah, like
1: a Corby trouser press or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but he's—you know—they were passing it through the lines, and as soon as you get pressure on you, if you can pass it past that person and run away from them, you know that's you, you're in there. And Arsenal did that a few times in the game in the first half, especially. Um, and Smith Rowe and Saka were were central to that. Yeah, you know, b- both got a goal and an assist, so. Um, the pair of them are my my heroes for definite.
3: I'm going to make a hero nomination that I don't think anyone can disagree with Raúl Jiménez, who scored his first goal for the club after his injury 336 well, days or something well, ridiculous. Well,
1: like it was that. Uh, this, it was all about the assist, wasn't it, from Jose Sarr. I don't think that really <laughs> that's, not, that's
3: not really the point, is it? <laughs> <laughs> that's not really the issue here. <laughs> I think the fact that he is back playing that takes a huge amount of mental strength when you've been through a horrific injury like he has, and the fact that he is back and he's scoring goals, deserves a huge amount of credit, not just to him, but to the medical team that got him back as well. So, And Wolves, to be fair, have struggled without him, yeah. I think. So it's good to see him back scoring goals. But let's get on to the really fun bit. Let's do the villains from the weekend. Can I go first with the villains? Because it can. comes off the back of what you're talking about, Marley, because I'm nominating Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang as the Ooh. villain of the weekend. Why? For, because of his celebration. That he did the the, oh, the no. copying Terry Henry on the knee slide. It's oh, like
1: I thought you were going to be like a a, a like a grass lover and you know hit the the huge yeah. marks no. that they leave every time.
3: They He's slide. doing his groundsman's course. I, I, I do feel like this. <laughs> it's a little bit gamony, this complaint, but I think the the fact you're emulating hey, If the cat fits. <laughs> if you're emulating your team's one of your team's greatest ever players, you've kind of got to earn the right to do that. And I think the way Pierre Emerick Aubameyang has played. Over the last... Well, since he signed his new contract, mm-hmm. he's not lived up to that status, so I don't think he should do it. And okay. I think
4: that kind of has summed up the issues with Arsenal over the past couple of years. You didn't say much about Lingard doing the Ronaldo thing the other week. I didn't see that. Oh, Did it's because you love Lingard too much. Well, <laughs> I don't know why. He, he could do one as well in that case. But <laughs> yeah. it's like, you've got
3: to, you've got to earn it. If you're going to do that, you've got to earn it. And I don't think Aubameyang is in a place where he's earned it yet. It would be like Joe Linton doing the Alan Shearer uh, <laughs> celebration after well, scoring his
4: Score first, <laughs>
3: yeah, exactly. So there we go. That's mine. Pierre Emerick Aubameyang. He's my villain of the weekend. Who are
4: you going for, Noel? God, you can't enjoy anything these days, can you? <laughs> <laughs> no, do you know what? I bloody, can't. <laughs> bloody strikers scoring goals. Uh, my villain is Bruno Fernandes, and not for the skyed penalty. Is that because he's? Uh, I was going to say, is that because he's penalty broke your window? <laughs> <at home? laughs> yeah. Well, it could have done. To be fair, it's in that general direction. It wasn't because of the penalty miss, nor for the fact that he crumbled under the pressure of Cristiano Ronaldo glaring at him from behind and... Was, know, was there
3: a bit of a debate? Was there a, I didn't see the
4: game. So no, was there a, no, Bruno okay. picked the ball up. Well, he's and, the penalty taker, that's yeah, fair enough. he's the penalty taker. and uh, there's there, <laughs> <anymore>. You can't <laughs> deny there must be a small part of Ronaldo that's thinking, get oh, in yeah. there, <laughs> I'm oh, going to yeah. take the next penalty. Um, Bruno Fernandes is the villain for me. Not for the missed penalty, because it's just his second missed penalty in, I think, 20-odd attempts for Manchester United. He's only missed four in his career, uh, and he scored, I think, 42-43 overall. The last one he missed was against Newcastle and I think he went and scored in that um, in that game anyway and kind of made amends. And the second was this one over the top. He didn't do his run, skip, hop, which I'm not always the biggest fan of anyway. It wasn't about the miss for me. Misses happen in football. Mm. Players miss penalties. Mark Noble missed one last week. He got some stick. Bruno Fernandes is going to get some stick and the next one will inevitably be taken by Cristiano Ronaldo. The reason he's my villain is because he felt the need to go onto social media and post what was quite a lengthy, wordy statement of apology to the Manchester United fans for missing the penalty. Now, for me, that puts him in the villain category because he has no need to do that. I don't understand this idea that sports people have to apologise when they make a mistake because Mm. it's part of sport that you're going to lose games. It's part of sport you're going to have a bad game. You're going to miss a penalty. You're going to get sent off. Now, it's a game against Aston Villa in the Premier League at Old Trafford, last minute, blazes it over. I completely understand why Bruno Fernandes would feel the need to apologise, but he doesn't have to apologise. And he's gone onto Twitter and it's been, it's like two paragraphs, two photos, screenshot that he's put on there. I don't understand this. Is, is it part of the result of the, because I think Manchester United has a bit of a poisonous atmosphere around
3: it at the moment in terms of the fan base? There seems to be this swing on a results-by-results basis. It's just the nature
4: of the size of the club, that every time they lose, it feels that way. Mm. Because when they beat Newcastle and and Ronaldo was back, it felt like the best Manchester United atmosphere there's been for however long. At least since I've lived in Manchester, it's never felt like that before. And after two defeats, or three defeats now, in the space of 10 days, that atmosphere might have switched, which is understandable. And then you've got Bruno Fernandes who misses this penalty and feels the need to apologise. Why are you apologising? It's part of the game, mate. It's part of the game, mm. Bruno. So it's not the miss that he's a villain for. And I understand why he's done it and posted an apology. And maybe that's something that a social media manager has said. or oh, maybe you should apologise. Or maybe he felt that he wanted to do that. And if that's the case, that's totally fine. I just don't think he needed to. Mm. Bruno Fernandes doesn't have to apologise to anyone. Since he came into Manchester United, he has transformed that team. And I don't think anyone can disagree with that, no matter what persuasion you are, whether you're a City fan, a Liverpool fan, any other fan. Bruno Fernandes has been magnificent for Manchester United in the main since he came into the club. He's got to make mistakes. Every person does, let alone sports person. So for me, he's a villain for that, not for the missed penalty, but for the fact that he felt that he needed to, you know, spend some time constructing a message and apologising when actually, Bruno, you don't need to. You've done more than enough for the club. I've
3: got a feeling Bruno Fernandez does not even know his Twitter password. To be honest with you, I think it would be surprising if he had anything to do with that statement. <laughs> Marley, wrap us up. Who is your villain from the weekend? My villain,
1: obviously. You already know it's going to be Newcastle, <laughs> don't you? Because we, we, we didn't Cause win of, yeah. at the weekend. Yeah, so. We could we, we just
3: clip your comments from every previous podcast <laughs> yeah, just and put <laughs> just them out repeat, in repeat what you said.
1: Insert new name. <laughs> um, it's not Bruce. Uh, it could be obviously, but I'm you know, I'm pro- probably going to go for Bruce next week. So. Um, this week it's it's Jacob Murphy. Um we had seven, six, seven chances to to kill off Watford at, at any stage of that game, you know. Um Joe Linton. Um no, in fact Joe Linton didn't miss a chance, I can remember actually. But um Saint Maximan you are? It's a fair assumption. Yeah, probably <laughs> yeah. Uh Saint Maximan had chances, Longstaff had chances um to go two nil up. Um, but the biggest one was, was Murphy, literally 30 seconds from the end of the game. Um, he gets put through by St Maximan. he's one-on-one with Ben Foster. And instead of just either trying to go around the goalie or slotting it past him and getting a shot away, he decides to try and chip Ben <laughs> Foster. Um, and it's not on, it's too straight. It's too. It's got to be really good contact at a really high speed to uh, to get that right. And for a, for a midfielder who doesn't score a massive amount of goals, that's a really tough finish. So you've got to you've got to understand the situation there, and just get a shot away. If he saves yeah. it, fine. You know you can say flipping out. It's a really good save in in a really big moment of the game. But um, yeah, we it was it was poor. It was a bad decision, um, and we didn't win the game because of it. Um, we should have won it before that. But it's 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 like a clutch moment. You have to you have to come up big in them moments, and you have to do that. Um, and he didn't. He he ballsed it. So um, the one thing I do want to say is I my, my feelings can't be summed up any better than um, John Anderson on BBC Radio Newcastle who was doing the commentary for the game. And I've got the, I've got the commentary here. So I want to play it. So this is what John Anderson's reaction was. So, so Max, the, obviously you can't see the clip on the podcast, but this is when Murphy goes through. So...
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, lovely neutral commentary <laughs> isn't, isn't that brilliant no, though? just good. put
0: it in the net yeah.
3: well, I
1: absolutely I peed my pants when I listened I, did, I, I I I couldn't find a stream for the game so I was watching it on final score and I seen it as soon as that come out when on Twitter found it and I thought that just sums up absolutely everything because as soon as you see that that clip that is what you're thinking in your head mm. and John Anderson just and no relation to me by the way I wish, I wish it was but yeah, what a, what a guy. He's completely summed it up there. Just, Jacob,
3: just put it in the net, man. Are you worried yet, Marley, when you look at the teams that you I'm failed to get results against? And you look like, the, the teams you're not beating are the teams around you. Watford, Leeds, Southampton, like yeah. with Burnley in the Cup, wasn't it? But you still failed to get a result at Burnley. These are the teams that surely Newcastle need to be picking up points against.
1: Yeah, um, it is. And... I think the one thing we are missing... I mean if Callum Wilson's playing that game we win that 4-1 easy um but we're struggling to finish without him so we need him we need his little you know hamstrings made of sawdust to to get better <laughs> um, and so we need him for 10, 10 12 games in a row cuz we haven't had that since he since he signed for us um and he still gets one in two every time he he, he plays properly so um hopefully he can come back and, and start sort of inspiring us if he was in the team and we were we were still not winning games I'd be really really worried but he's um he's he's not been in the team for the last three games I don't think so I feel like that's where we can in easily improve and 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 start getting some goals because our le- general level of play isn't that bad at the minute um we should have beat Watford at the weekend we should have won last week as well but didn't because we didn't have enough up front
3: We look forward to your criticism of Newcastle next Monday when we do Heroes and Villains again. (laughs) Same time, same Same place. Same time, same place. That is it for Football Social Daily today. We'll be back again tomorrow with another podcast looking back at that Brighton versus Crystal Palace game and potentially hailing Graham Potter as the greatest football manager of all time. I've got to say... I think he looks the part this season. <laughs> new beard, Paul new Wello threads. Inspired, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's looking good as Graham Potter. So fair play. Deserves some credit for that. If nothing else. That is it for Football Social Daily. We'll see you next time.
0: Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode.